This is The Road That Killed a City, Episode 2, A Gilded Age. At the end of the 19th century, Hartford's success made the entire city look like a dream world. Lovely green spaces designed by world-renowned landscape architects were awash with rose gardens and ivy-covered tennis courts. There were celebrities and famous intellectuals, and the insurance and manufacturing industries gave multimillionaires the ability to build decadent mansions, sometimes on the top of mountains. It was this exact reputation that caught the interest of an up-and-coming writer in the mid-1800s. Mark Twain actually showed up in town in 1868. That's Steve Courtney, who, after leaving a career in journalism at the Hartford Current, became a Mark Twain historian. And while he was here, he wrote back to his paper about what Hartford was like. And he said, of all the beautiful towns, it has been my fortune to see, this is the chief. And this was a guy who had been to Paris. He fell in love with Hartford so much that he decided to move to the city. Which was really very much for personal reasons, personal friendships, as well as con his connection with this publisher. Twain moved to the city in 1871, right after publishing his first best-selling book, The Innocents Abroad. And much like an up-and-coming actor moving to LA today, the strong publishing scene meant Hartford was the place to be for a budding author in the 19th century. Um, and a lot of that wealth was what that and his best-selling book enabled him to live, you know, more or less like a, a not a rich guy, but an upper middle class guy mm -hmm. for that era. Twain had his house built, which today is a National Historic Landmark, on Farmington Avenue in what was then known as the Nook Farm neighborhood. When Mark Twain first saw it, was there were still cow pastures, there were ponds that you could skate on in the wintertime. Um, there was, it was a pretty relatively, not rural, but a, a real suburban area. It was also a wealthy and progressive neighborhood. His friend, one friend described it as a place where nobody kept their doors locked and people would come and visit at all hours and, uh, mm -hmm. and they called their minister by his first name, which seemed to be, a, you know, in a formal era, this is the Victorian era, the, that, was, that was not usual. This was an aspect of the city that Twain particularly liked. He did say when he wrote back to his newspaper that he had not seen any poor people in Hartford. But despite the fact that Hartford was considered the wealthiest city in the country per capita, this was still the Gilded Age, a time known for its vast income inequality. And while Twain initially thought he was moving to a city without poor people, he would eventually see a side of Hartford that was hidden from view. Jack Doherty is a professor at Trinity College, and he literally wrote the book on inequality in Hartford. It's called on the Line, how schooling, housing, and civil rights shaped Hartford and its suburbs. And Doherty says it's important to understand how wealth was measured back then. They're just doing some very simple math at the time. How much money is in the banks that are located in Hartford divided by what's the population? Today we break these numbers down into medium household income and income inequality to get a better understanding of wealth. This was research that was not being done back then. You wouldn't measure things that way today. That would be basically like saying, 
let's take all the value of the banks in Manhattan and divide it by the population, but ignoring the fact that a large number of people living on the upper Manhattan in Harlem don't own the money in the banks. Mm -hmm. Same thing in, in Hartford at that time. And as Courtney describes, when Twain finally did move into the city, he was able to get a better understanding of the poverty that did exist in Hartford. And he was really shocked that he said he hadn't seen anything as bad as that, even in the, the worst places he'd been in the Middle East and in, in um, Europe. So, so there was a tremendous amount of poverty, and it was a very much more a starvation level kind of poverty than we're familiar with. But Courtney also notes that the major manufacturing industry and the charity work done by the well-funded churches meant that the poverty didn't spiral out of control. No, I think it was considered a, a pretty a pretty good place to live, and it was on the upswing. And this reputation as a manufacturing and business hub helped the city double in population at the beginning of the 20th century. It was also getting, uh, its culture was getting refreshed by new people, people from Italy, from, from Russia, from uh, uh, Germany. You know, there were, it, it was a great time of immigration, and... Um, Mm -hmm. And people would, would flock to a city like this where, where they were making leather belts for every factory in the country, or they were publishing books that were read all over the country. And with this change of demographics, Hartford came face to face with an issue that it really hadn't ever dealt with before. Connecticut likes to think of itself as having been, you know, universally abolitionist as, as having um, the Underground Railroad passing through the state everywhere. And in a sense, this is true. Hartford was a hub for progressive thought, home to people like Harriet Beecher Stowe, author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, who was Mark Twain's next door neighbor. Connecticut was also a major part of the Underground Railroad, with many runaway slaves finding refuge at the mansions of Mark Twain's Nook Farm neighborhood in Hartford. Courtney also mentioned one particular event that occurred after John Brown, the famed abolitionist who orchestrated the raid on Harper's Ferry, was arrested and hanged in 1859. Two men, one black and one white, climbed to the dome of the old state house, which, which was then the city hall. Back in the late 1800s, the dome of the old state house would have been central and visible for most city residents. And there was a figure of justice on the top, and they shrouded it to, to show that justice was shrouded in America that day because John Brown was, was being hanged. Courtney describes Hartford as a place, perhaps one of the few places at the time, where demonstrations like this, though not universally approved of, were at least tolerated. There was definitely a strong impulse. People could do something like that. But Hartford's abolitionist mentality wasn't pure and absolute as we sometimes like to think it was. But there were also people very much on the other side, people who traded with the South. Hartford's industrial powers often didn't have a problem with the moral shortcomings of the Southern states at the time. Connecticut had a great uh, carriage-making industry in those days and clock-making and um, those carriages and clocks and many other things were, were sold down south. This was, for a lot of people, a real black eye on the image of Hartford. Some people even talk about a sort of complicity with the, with the slave, uh, slave culture down, down into the, in the south. The slave power, they called it. 
There was also another issue. While Hartford was a hub for the abolitionist movement, they fought for change knowing they wouldn't be the ones who lived with it. The percentage of Hartford residents who identified as African-American or black on, on census forms or in the language of that term as Negro or colored on that census form, um, I believe in the 19th century, it's, like, it's down to like 2% or maybe 3%. But at the turn of the century, when a large number of European immigrants came to the city seeking a better life, another group with a similar ambition started making its way to Hartford. It's not till we get to say the great migration of the 1910s and 20s that we start to see the beginning of a significant African-American population. And with this change in demographics, Hartford decided it was time to drastically change shape. 